0: A reading from the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Aeneas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country and around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, And we're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ.
1: Hi, everyone. Can I invite you to stand? Um, page eight uh, is the Nicene Creed, Um and it's, um, it, it covers the, the fundamentals, the foundation of, uh, of Christian faith. And so we invite you to join in. And, uh, and when we say we believe, what we're doing is we're entrusting ourselves individually, but also all of us together, uh, to God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the great story um, and the good news uh, that he uh, has brought about. So invite you to join, again, join in as we say together, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. We look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. Uh, join with me in prayer as we stand. The Father in Heaven, the um, book of Isaiah talks about preparing uh, the way of the Lord. Uh, and John the Baptist uh, worked on that, and... It, we, we need preparation for you. Uh, we are seldom really ready to meet you, to know you, to receive you. Uh, will you get us ready? Will you do everything necessary in us? Will you prepare the way for yourself uh, in our own minds and hearts? Will you grant us to pay attention, but will you speak to us and transform us? And will you give us your Holy Spirit? Give us new hearts, transform us from the inside out, and do everything necessary to get that done, because it is a gift we dare not miss. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, everybody. And um, uh, please turn back to that, uh, that second reading. Uh, begins on page six, goes to seven and eight. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about John the Baptist, and um, John the Baptist, uh, the the main kind of preacher in this reading, um, he gives us an insight into one of the most, one of the remarkable things about uh, Christianity. Here, here's what I mean. If you look over the long story of Christian history, so 2,000 years, and we could throw in a pre-Christian history that you read in the Bible, but... If you look at the history of Christianity, you'll find um, a bunch of moments where Christianity just looks like it's, it's just spent as a movement. It's tired, Uh, it is dry, and in many points uh, it looks, it's hypocritical, very often it's corrupt, sometimes it's power hungry, and in those moments, and there's many of them, There's really good reason, when you're in that moment, to think that the Christian movement is functionally dead. It had a good run, but it's functionally spent, certainly for the future. However, and this is the remarkable thing, very often, right in those moments, um, something happens, uh, often unexpected, and there's an outbreak of spiritual vitality, Uh, spiritual renewal, spiritual revival, and sometimes it just seems to come from nowhere. Now I could uh, spend a long time telling you all kinds of stories about times that this has happened and I take um, great delight in doing so so you can ask me later, but let me just pick one at random, almost random, it's just one of my favorite. Uh, Late 1920s in Kampala, Uganda. Uh, The church in that moment, Uh, what seemed uh, just dry, hopelessly compromised with British colonialism. It was largely white in an African country. It was spiritually dry. It was profoundly not compelling and deeply irrelevant. And then suddenly, out of apparently nowhere, everything changes and spiritual vitality breaks out all over the place and within 20 years the church in East Africa ends up being almost unrecognizable. It's alive instead of dead, it's deeply immersed in the indigenous culture of the countries around East Africa and just people's lives are being changed left right and center and I can tell you lots of stories. And that's just one, but I mean, we could talk about um, uh, China in the second half of the 20th century, or we could talk about Egypt in the fourth century, or we could talk about any number of different places where the church, where the Christian movement seems like it's just spent, and then all of a sudden life appears. And why am I saying this? Well, because uh, our reading is part of the origin story of that remarkable characteristic of Christianity. And this is more than just a historical curiosity. You're like, I'm not a history person. That's fine. Um, here's, Here's why this is more than just a historical curiosity. John the Baptist shows us how spiritual renewal happens within the individual's life. And that means this. If you are interested in spiritual renewal in your own life, you need to listen to this reading. If you're not interested, if, if you know you just want to kind of stay as you are, you don't want transformation, you want to just kind of hold everything at arm's l- distance, then pl- then I counsel you to just p- try to avoid John the Baptist, because he's aiming all the way, always, for some of the most uncomfortable parts of our lives, and yet he's aiming always at a deep and profound transformation. So, And this is also important if you're here and you're like, you know what, I'm not a Christian, I'm not signed up for this whole thing yet. Well, this passage is really important for you as well. Why? Because if you are evaluating Jesus and uh, the Christian movement, you need to pay attention to to, uh, not only places where it's really, really strong and everything seems to be firing on all cylinders, you need to pay attention to those moments where Christianity uh, course corrects where the people of God see their corruption and their hypocrisy and everything that's wrong and then a transformation happens because that's the moment where you're gonna see some of the best fruits of the Christian faith. All right, here's what I wanna do. I wanna show you three characteristics of spiritual renewal that we learn from this passage. Uh, Here's the first one, ready? Uh, Spiritual renewal begins with a devastating assessment of moral corruption. Let's get into it. Take a look at verse seven. And as you glance at verse seven, let me set the stage. Uh, John the Baptist, Baptist wasn't his last name. Baptist is just uh, the thing he did a lot. He baptized people. Um, John the Baptist was the son of a priest called Zechariah. And his father, uh, we saw this several weeks ago, his father ministered in the uh, temple in Jerusalem. And one of the things that that means is that John was born into a family where he could have lived right at the center of cultural power and religious power and even political power. Presumably, John could have ended up being a priest. But John doesn't do that he purposefully rejects that path and he heads out into the wilderness, which part of that, what that means is that he's kind of living off the grid. Um, and he's, and he creates enough distance, uh, from kind of cultural, uh, the cultural machinery of power. He creates distance between that and himself such that he's able to evaluate and critique his own society and his own religious context. And verse 7 is his assessment of his religious and, and national community. And here's what he says. Uh, verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Charming. Who warned you? That's He didn't say the charming bit. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. It's brutal. Why? Why is he so brutal? Well, look back at his message. Um, so, do you notice the image of the fruit tree? Uh, uh, now, th- think about a fruit tree. And um, it's, it's fall in New York. Think about an apple tree. Um, an apple tree, right, is, is a tree with, uh, with a purpose, with a mission, with a vocation, kinda. A- an apple tree is supposed to do something. It's supposed to produce apples, right? And if an apple tree fails to produce apples, eventually it's gonna be cut down, it's gonna be turned into firewood, uh, so that it can make room for a tree that actually does what it's supposed to do. Now, that is John's assessment of the state of play in Israel at a religious and a cultural viewpoint. Now, why does he come to that assessment? Well, did you notice the reference to Abraham? Don't say we've got Abraham as our father. There's a backstory there. Um, uh, Somewhere around 2,000 years before uh, John the Baptist, you can read about this in the book of Genesis, God comes to a guy called Abraham, and God says in so many words, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a family, and then that family is gonna grow and become a nation, and that's gonna be a nation, we're gonna call it Israel, doesn't actually tell Abraham that, but I'm kind of skipping a lot. Uh, that nation is gonna be a nation uh, with a purpose and a mission and a vocation, and the mission and the purpose and the vocation is this, your family, your nation, Israel, is going to be tasked with representing me to the world so that the rest of the world eventually can get to know me too. And the idea was that God was going to give Israel a kind of privileged access to himself, a, a privileged knowledge of his character, a privileged relationship with him and then Israel was meant to reflect God's character as they interacted with each other and with the world and, and especially their, their deeds and their ethics and their words were meant to be kind of unique and out of sync with the cultures around them but in sync with the character of God. They were to know God and love God and through their words and their deeds they were meant to reflect God to the world around them that's the fruit. Well keep that in your mind and go back to John because John looks at Israel in his day and he says I don't see any fruit. He looks at his nation and he says you are not representing God you are disfiguring God and it seems that John's particularly concerned about the abuse of power and the abuse of money and the abuse of sex. So if you look at the text, uh, some people were were using their power to extort the poor. You can see that in the tax collectors, verse 12. You can see that in the soldiers, verse 14. Others, uh, it seems, had less power, but they were hoarding wealth, their private property, in such a manner that they were uh, failing to care for the poor, which was part of the fruit. That they were supposed to show from the Old Testament, verse 11. And other people like Herod, Herod was the local um, political leader, um, Herod apparently was p- playing fast and loose with marriage and with sexuality in verse 19. Now, capture that uh, money, sex, and power, the old three. And they were abusing all of them and they were abusing them in a way that was disfiguring God's character, misrepresenting God, but also, crucially, offending God's justice. And so John comes and says, Israel, we gotta have a very serious conversation. Israel, I'm looking at you, and we have to understand, Israel, you are corrupt, and God is just, and that means the two of you are on a collision course and I promise it's not going to end well for you, you need to turn around, and you need to turn around right now, says John. Turn around is the basic meaning of repentance. Now, I want to emphasize two things here, Emmanuel. You need to notice John's just ferocious assessment of Israel's moral corruption or sin. And on the other hand, John's ferocious upholding of God's judgment. And even as I say this, I realize that both of those things kind of grate against us, don't they? And yet I want to encourage us to actively embrace both. Why? Consider this. What's the difference between, a? okay, this is overly simplistic, but just go with me for a second. Think about a dysfunctional family, think about a healthy family. What's the difference? Many things, but crucially, both of them have problems. It's not that one has problems and one doesn't have problems. It's very often that a dysfunctional family is not willing to be assessed. They're not willing to look at the issues. They cover them up and they don't talk about them. And some of us have very personal experience of this. On the other hand, a healthy family very often is marked by a willingness to look at what is not right and deal with it, and that's where the health comes. And the same is true in the spiritual life. I mean, of course, we all wanna be affirmed, right? Um, we, and none of us want to be assessed. But the fear and the rejection of being assessed by God is going to undermine and sabotage any possibility of spiritual renewal. And if you want to experience spiritual renewal, one of the very first steps is you've got to give consent to allow what we call the Word of God, or the message of God, who who is God, what has God done, and what does it mean for us? We've got to allow that message to kind of bring us face-to-face with our ugly, with our characters, with our past, with our souls. And it's really scary, and it's so important. But at the same time, and this actually gets even more scary, um, don't worry, it'll get better, okay, I promise. But it's going to get worse first. At the same time, we've got to hold on to a very robust view of God's justice and judgment. Now, you you see all the fire imagery? Um, uh, fire, uh, Verse 9, verse 17, furnaces, stuff like that. Um, What's John's point? Here's John's point. Uh, God's going to hold all of us accountable. Uh, to some extent, in this life and comprehensively in the next. And God's going to hold us accountable for our moral corruption. That means one way or the other we're going to have to face it. And I realize that that is also the idea of God's judgment is so distasteful for a lot of us. But again, I want to argue that it's just vitally important. Why? Well, follow me here. If God does not judge evil in the end, if God merely affirms and does not assess or bring about accountability, then what that means is that God is complicit with evil. And if God is complicit with evil, then it means one way or the other, evil runs rampant and wins. And if we live in a world in which evil runs rampant and wins in the end, and if God is too uh, dis, uh, 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 disengaged to deal with it, then it means that right now we're living in a world in which the only thing that really matters and makes a difference is power. Power. If injustice can run on with impunity, then it means it's every man for himself, it's every woman for himself, it's every tribe for themselves, you need to grasp power, you need to coerce your opponents, you need to wield it all for your own interests. And friends, don't you see that around us? And I sometimes wonder if the if the power-wielding and the coercion and the corruption that we see within the church or within the political sphere or within the business community is somehow connected to the fact that we've forgotten that one day we will, all of us, look into the eyes of a just God. The doctrine, doctrine of God's judgment in the end secures a world now where justice and goodness, and sacrificial love, and integrity matter. And Emmanuel, it matters. So spiritual renewal begins with a devastating assessment of our moral condition. But it doesn't end there. This is where it gets better, everybody. Everybody breathe. Okay, it's gonna get better now. Spiritual renewal continues and gathers power through the proclamation, the promise of God's grace. So this is great because John's message is not just about Israel's sin and God's judgment. John's message is even louder about the offer of amnesty. That's what the baptism of repentance is all about it's an offer. You go into the water, you're immersed because you are starting, you get the opportunity to, so to speak, start over and receive an amnesty that you don't deserve. So when John came, when people came out to John to hear John, uh, they saw their corruption. But then as he preached, they also heard of God's desire to forgive. Now again, think with me about this. As I already said, it's really nice to be affirmed we all love it and there's nothing wrong with it and it's particular, it's really nice to be affirmed for some when you're good at something you're good at your work you're affirmed for it it's fantastic but there's an entirely other experience entirely different experience when you see your own wretched corruption but instead of being rejected for it though you may deserve that you find yourself being loved beyond all imagining and being, you find yourself pardoned and freed and forgiven and then that power is amplified more when the one who is forgiving you is the God of justice who will judge in the end. It is one thing to be affirmed for your merit. It's another thing to be loved into the worst of your shame. And that's a kind of love, Emmanuel, that can change a life. And that's the love that John is preaching. So he preaches a message of amnesty, pardon, forgiveness. But he also preaches a message of power. Look at verse 16. Uh, apparently John was so compelling that people, uh, a lot of people thought he might be the Messiah, which is um, the promised king who's going to make the broken world right. John rejected that out of hand, but... He says that the real Messiah, when he comes, is going to baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now focus on the Spirit for a minute. The Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament. In fact, um, our first reading mentions it. And part of the idea is this. Uh, All of us uh, humans, we, what the Bible calls sin, We, we, we run headlong into corruption. And according to the Bible, we do that not just because we happen to make uh, ill-informed choices. It's deeper than that. Uh, We run headlong into corruption or sin because our hearts have an orientation problem. Our hearts are orientated in such a manner that we prefer self and self-interest, especially short-term self-interest. And we prefer self-centeredness we're selfish and because of that, we have a tendency to reject God. we want to hold God at best at arm's length because he's an interference, but it also leads us to sabotage others because very often others around us are competitors. we might use them or we might uh, undermine them, but we're the in the center and that creates Uh, A gravitational attraction towards corruption and sin and injustice and all that goes with that. And so what we need, according to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, we need a new orientation. Or we need a new heart. That's what the first reading was about. Instead of a heart of stone that's hard and resistant to God, we need a heart of flesh that's, that's responsive. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is God and God comes into the human person and reorients our desires and our preferences so that we desire God over self. And we prefer God over self, and we love God, not just for the good things he gives us, though we love that, but also just for who he is in himself. It's a relationship of real intimacy. And you can see all of this in live action when you look at Jesus, when he was baptized and when he's praying after the fact. Look at verse 22. Jesus is baptized and then, he, and then he's praying and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. And Jesus senses the Father's affection. This is my son and I'm pleased with him. And there's a lot going on there, but at least this. The implication is that Jesus is returning that love to the Father. You are my Father, and I love you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does within the human heart. And that's what Jesus came to provide. So Jesus, we're going to see this as Luke unfolds, Jesus, his mission was to represent God perfectly, to represent God's perfect justice and God's perfect love in one person, never competing with each other but completely harmonized and how jesus did that is many ways but it all comes to a head when jesus goes to the cross and he dies on behalf of others and when he dies upon the cross what he's doing is he's facing god's judgment on our behalf so that jesus experiences God's judgment so that we don't have to and we can be forgiven and we can receive amnesty. But when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, he sent the Holy Spirit. And so that the Holy Spirit is to come into our lives and kind of share Jesus's orientation of love to God with us so that we can be transformed from the inside out. So Emmanuel, let me ask you a question. Do you know the power of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual renewal begins when we receive that grace, the grace of forgiveness and the grace of the Spirit. And it's crucial that we become a culture, we cultivate a culture that is always seeking, always seeking the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-off thing. It's, it's keep pursuing him. We need to be a people who say, God, I bring you my sin and my guilt and my shame. And I agree with your just assessment of all of it. And I'm looking to Jesus because Jesus gave his life so that I could be set free. And he promised to give me his Holy Spirit. So I'm calling in that promise, Father. Will you pour out your spirit into my life and give me a new desire for you? And I wonder, Emmanuel, if you've done that. Is that part of your story? Spiritual renewal begins with a devastating assessment of our moral corruption, our sin. Spiritual renewal gains power through the promise of grace, the grace of amnesty, and the grace of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, spiritual renewal takes hold when we respond in repentance and faith. The point is, all of this requires a response. And have you responded? And remember, it's no use saying, we have Abraham as our father. It's no use saying, "Well, I was baptized as a baby," or "I was baptized when after I was a baby," um, and n- nor is it. It does no use to say, "Well, I actually have remarkable qualities. Um, I'm 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 morally conscious. I'm justice minded. I'm 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 notably better, especially if I'm graded graded on a curve over and against the other folks." Friends, whatever you admire in yourself will not be a qualification when you stand before God. The longer you grasp onto your qualifications before God, the more you will sabotage your spiritual renewal. And you can see that in the text. Do you see the people who responded to John the Baptist? They're the worst people in the whole society. Look at the soldiers. The soldiers were kind of like a brute squad for the tax collectors. They were thugs with the power of the state behind them and they extorted poor people. Like, that's bad. And and the tax collectors were right there with them. These are terrible people, friends. And they were the first to respond. And that's a testimony to the transforming power of true spiritual renewal. And all through history, obviously bad people are often the first to experience spiritual renewal. Why? Because they have no reason to trust in themselves and they have no alternative but to grasp onto grace. Friends, very often the worst of us are the first in the kingdom of God. And sometimes the best of us are left cold and corrupt outside. Don't be among them. So Emmanuel, let's let's do different. Let's invite the assessment, uncomfortable as it is, with our eyes set upon grace, alluring us to a God who gives us forgiveness we don't deserve and the privileges of the Holy Spirit that is beyond our imagining. And then let's be allured and empowered, transformed from the inside out and set out into the city and amongst each other to bear fruit in keeping with repentance so that the world can look at us and see a God who's better than they ever imagined. Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.